Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of The CX Cast. This is Jenny Wise, and I am joined this week by Forrester Principal Analyst, Gina Ballwalker. Hi, Gina. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you here, especially because you're going to help us answer a big question on this week's episode, which is why does digital accessibility matter beyond the legal ramifications and what should companies do to address it? And this topic came up because you recently published a piece of research on this topic. So what prompted you to do this research? Yeah, it's a great question. So essentially, in my two years now covering the topic of digital accessibility for Forrester, what I've come to the conclusion of is that most Mm -hmm. companies are taking a very narrow approach to accessibility. When I have calls with clients on this topic, I would say like 70% of the time, the question they're asking is the same. And it's like some variation of what do I need to do to be compliant with accessibility standards so that I don't get sued? Now, what that question tells me is that companies want to do the bare minimum to make Mm -hmm. sure they're meeting the standards so their digital experiences are compliant. But what that approach doesn't yield is actually a good user experience for the segments of customers that those standards are intended to help in the first place, customers like people with disabilities. And so I wanted to take on this research because the companies I talk to who are getting accessibility right, they're all doing kind of one thing in common. They have processes in place for actually engaging people with disabilities in their design process through things like conducting usability testing with people who are blind who use screen readers so they can make sure their websites and apps work effectively for them. So we decided to conduct our own study like this, actually speaking with people with disabilities about their experience using websites and mobile apps, really so that we could illustrate to our clients the types of insights that they can uncover by doing that and how those insights that this research reveals are actually things that if they put them into practice will help all of their customers and Mm -hmm. yield a better experience for everyone. So that was kind of the goal behind the research and the report that we just published called Get Accessibility Right shines a light on five of the specific best practices that we uncovered through doing so and that, you know, we hope our clients can uncover similar best practices by engaging people with disabilities in their processes too. And I love some of the things that you mentioned in that which is that this is so much more than just becoming, you know, ADA compliant, for example. Even in the way we sort of talked about it when I was speaking with you before is, you know, was this report about how to be ADA compliant and how do teams begin to design around that? And you said, no, it's about digital accessibility, right? This is such a larger topic than just checking the box on being compliant. So I think that's sort of really important. And that alone is a really important insight and message to get across. Absolutely. That's completely right, Jenny. I mean, focusing on being compliant is not inherently, you know, a bad thing. Sometimes that's what gets the conversation around accessibility started within a company. And we have Mm -hmm. seen a lot of accessibility lawsuits. So, you know, it's good (laughs) to be thinking about that. But the challenge is you will not seize all of the benefits that can come from focusing on accessibility, like accessing new markets of customers, if you only think about the legal ramifications. Right. Yes, that's important. That can help you perhaps make the case for why you want to be more sort of inclusive in your design process if you need to, to get that buy-in. But this is really about creating sort of better outcomes and optimizing them through more sort of inclusive design. Absolutely. 
So you mentioned that you conducted several interviews and from that were able to identify some sort of key best practices. Can you share at a high level what those were? Of course. Five best practices specifically really bubbled up to the surface during this research. First best practice is minimize the amount of information your customers must process at once. The second is avoiding jargon, write in plain English. The third is provide content in multiple modalities. The fourth is to right-size the effort required to activate and interact with UI controls. And the fifth and final is to make sure that link names are specific. Now, where this best practice came from, we interviewed a gentleman named Dave. Dave has cerebral palsy, so when he interacts with websites, he's not using a mouse and keyboard like many of us are. He's actually using a product called New Point Head Tracking. So he has like a little reflective dot on his glasses that allows him to, using his head movement, actually navigate to, you know, a specific control on a web page and select that control. Pretty cool. But the problem is that requires a lot of precision. And so Dave described to us how he was using a website recently where, you know, there was a checkbox that he needed to activate on a form. And the checkbox was so small that he spent way more time than should ever be spent (laughs) activating a checkbox trying to select this control. And so the best practice there is making sure that, you know, interactive elements aren't so small that you're creating extra, you know, work for your customers just to be able to complete that very simple task of interacting with that element. And what was so interesting about that was these sorts of missteps create a situation where someone like Dave struggles to the point where he may not even be able to complete that form. But it's also something that's just irritating for everyone. I mean, I think we all can probably recall a recent experience where we were, you know, using a mobile app and trying to tap something on the screen and the elements were so close together that, you know, we ended up tapping the incorrect element and essentially wasting time and interrupting what should be a very straightforward workflow. So this is actually an example of a best practice that's critical for people like Dave, but when implemented in a digital experience, helps everyone. And that's the idea that's often referred to as the curb cut effect. And that's a great example because hearing you speak to it, you might think that the solution there was going to be some sort of really complex interaction that was going to be required to accommodate the task he wanted to complete. But it was really just designing it better, right? It wasn't something... Yeah, make make the checkbox bigger. Yeah, just make it a better Um, checkbox. Exactly. And just think about these things. And it can't be done. So, for example, in the report... We include an example from U.S. Bank. If you go to U.S. Bank's website and you open their navigational menus, you'll notice a couple things right away. The menu items are in a large font. There's a lot of white space between each menu item. And they really thought about that and said, we want to make sure that, you know, people can easily activate these items, that the kind of target area is sufficiently large, and that they're easy to read and easy to see. And that certainly helps people like Dave. It helps people who have visual impairments. But guess what? It also helps all of us by just creating a kind of clearer and easier to read navigational menu. And talking about helping everyone, you mentioned this term, the curb cut effect. I know that when I first heard that term, I was trying to imagine in my mind, you know, what is this curb cut and how is, it, how is this linking into design and digital accessibility best practices? Can you explain sort of what the curb cut effect means, why maybe it's called that, and then yes. sort of expand on some examples? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the origin of that term and the reason why it's called curb cut effect is it actually refers to the physical curb cuts that you mm-hmm. see in the sidewalks that you probably walk on every day. Those curb cuts were originally put in place to help wounded war veterans in wheelchairs wheel safely from the sidewalk to the street. But of course, those curb cuts don't only help people in wheelchairs, they also help you know, caregivers pushing strollers, kids on tricycles, people mm-hmm. on skateboards, you know, any other number Anyone of Anyone that might trip off the curb. <laughs> yeah. So that's like, you know, the origin of the term, a physical curb cut. But we see these curb cuts everywhere and in the digital world as well. So, for example, there's a, an example that we cite in the report from UK Bank Monzo. And one of the things that Monzo decided to do was they took their terms and conditions statement on their website, something that for most firms is usually, you know, kind of riddled with legal jargon and requires a law degree to understand. Mm -hmm. And they said, we're going to make our terms and conditions less than 1,500 words at an 11-year-old reading level. And we're going to apply information design best practices to make sure that is easy to see you know, content is sufficiently kind of broken up with clear headings, et cetera. So we create a really good experience, even around something like terms and conditions. And in doing so, that is critical for people with learning disabilities who read at low reading levels, but it also helps everyone because no one understands, you know, jargon. I would challenge anyone to explain to me, you know, their bank's terms and conditions. So that's, you know, one example of a curb cut in the digital realm. Another one that I've often talked about in my research because I think people can really identify with it is when Netflix added audio description to their streaming content, which essentially is a feature that narrates what's happening on the screen for someone who is blind. They found that other customers who are not blind were using that feature to listen to Netflix while driving in their cars. Mm -hmm. So probably an unintended example of the curb cut effect, but one nonetheless. Right. So in the design, even for to address the need of a special audience, it will also help increase the experience for all potential audiences as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's actually kind of an interesting source of innovation, you know, to think about, you know, what if we, the next time we approach a design challenge, what if we focus on a persona of someone with a permanent challenge, a cognitive disability or visual impairment or something like that, created a great experience for them, you know, would we actually arrive at a better solution than if we started by designing for idea of a mythical average customer that doesn't in fact actually exist? Yeah, I love that idea. Also, as you know, I like to talk about innovation. (laughs) That reminds me of that brainstorming method, right, where you sort of add a constraint that you have to design around. And often that constraint will be something like this can only be visual, right? Or you have to deliver this really complex experience only using audio, right? And that makes people think outside of the box and generate more ideas than they would otherwise if they were just thinking of what the current state is, or as you mentioned, sort of what the average consumer looks like. So that's a great piece of advice. Absolutely. So something to try in your next uh, co-creation session, perhaps. Love it. So speaking of that, then, now we're sort of talking about the process, right, and how you can adjust your design process, customer experience process to design for digital accessibility, which can then help everybody. Are there some best practices or tools or tips that companies can use to do this better? Yes, there absolutely are. So when it comes to engaging people with disabilities in research, which is the best practice, where I would suggest starting there, there are organizations out there who have panels of people with disabilities that you can tap into for this purpose. 
For this research, we actually partnered with a company called Nobility. They're a nonprofit that has a panel called Access Works that includes people with disabilities all around the world who can be tapped into for usability testing, interviews, et cetera. So that's certainly one option. I also talk to a lot of clients who have gone out into their community. So, for example, reaching out to the local Society for the Blind and saying, you know, look, we're trying to improve the accessibility of our products. We would love to engage with your member base to get their feedback on our current experiences so we can make them better. And I think that companies will find those organizations are very receptive to working with you. And often by engaging with their members, they can then refer you to others in the disability community that they know to also serve as as participants within your research. So it's definitely not as difficult as many companies perceive it to be because there are these organizations and resources out there who are eager to help companies who are making digital accessibility a priority. Right. There's no excuse not to do this is what I heard. Absolutely. Also, too, it's interesting. I was actually just reading an article this morning from Answer Lab. Answer Lab is a firm that focuses on UX research, and they made a really good point that you may be actually recruiting customers today for your research studies who have disabilities that are essentially invisible to you. More people than you think, for example, have learning disabilities or have failing vision, you know, because they're aging or whatnot. And so they actually had an interesting suggestion of when you recruit people for research, update your screener to allow people, if they're comfortable, to self-identify as having a disability. And that may reveal that you have people in your research already who have some of these challenges and, you know, might be comfortable with you asking them some additional questions about how your experience supports or doesn't support them given their particular disability. Yeah. So lots of, lots of ways to go about this. Yeah, that's a great idea too, right? Because I'm thinking of some of the voice research that we do here. Big component of voice when we talk about designing for voice is, you know, what is the auditory processing capability, right, of this person and how many uh, bits of information can they keep in their working memory at a time? And it is very likely that you might be talking to someone who does have an auditory processing disability that you don't see or that you don't know. And so it's a great idea to ask it and also to let people be open and feel good about saying that because they're helping to contribute to the process. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's such a great point. And one other just kind of last point I'll mention is when I talk to companies like Microsoft and Adobe who, you know, are really kind of leading the way in terms of taking a very inclusive approach to designing experiences, Another tip that they have is to actually engage employees within your organization who have disabilities. You know, Microsoft told me how they actually would post flyers before they would have hackathons inviting employees with disabilities to self-identify and come participate in these hackathons so they can be that voice of customers who have a similar disability as they do. And so that can also be like a really nice first step to including this perspective in your design process without even going out and recruiting customers. Mm -hmm. So wanted to mention that idea as well. Well, Gina, thank you so much for providing the overview of this newly published research. I love that we focused on digital accessibility, right? So this is not just about ADA compliance and sort of checking the box there. This is really about improving the experience, 
how doing so can benefit everyone with that curb cut effect, which now we all know what that means, and that there are a lot of ways to get started to incorporate people with disabilities of many different types into your process today to create these better outcomes, right? From going out to the community, working with special companies that can recruit these audiences, and also just asking around, right? And working with your own employees. So it is something that is easy to get started with. So thank you, Gina. And listeners, please check out the notes section of this episode where we have a link to this piece of research, which is called Get Accessibility Right, Recruit People with Disabilities into the Design Process. And with that, thank you for listening and talk to you next week. 